welcome back to Word Up with Danny Katz. I am your host, Danny Katz. I am an author, journalist, and a quantum languaging coach and consultant. What that means is that I teach people how language programs consciousness, how language programs reality at large, and how to transform reality and evolve our consciousness with language. I've also been known to cultivate and share an opinion or two or 12 about culture and consciousness and how they are evolving, devolving, and being manipulated by the powers that were. Here at Word Up, we are devoted to fostering critical thinking while supporting you in becoming your most authentic, empowered, liberated, realized, amazing version of yourself. Our every show aims to expand your consciousness, raise your frequency, sharpen your critical thinking skills, and make you giggle. (laughs) And think. Given the radical uptick in censorship over the past few years, combined with the complete co-opting slash decimation of my own personal industry, journalism, I started Word Up to have a free speech-friendly platform in which to engage exploratory, solutions-based conversations with visionaries, mystics, original thinkers, and rebel badasses who are helping to make the world more wonderful. The first half of my interviews run between 30 to 90 minutes and are always posted here for free public listening. The second halves are reserved for paid supporters on my Patreon and my Locals platforms, where for as little as $5 a month, you can access all of my second half conversations along with oodles of other bonus content and opportunities to drop in with me, to drop in with our High Vibe tribe, and lots of other awesome things. In addition to interviews, Word Up also features quantum languaging upgrades, planetary service announcements, and propaganda analysis, which I call Spot the Propaganda. Thank you so much for tuning in and for sharing your sacred attention with me and our high vibe tribe of change makers. Be sure to click that subscribe button so you can stay abreast of our every episode. Thank you for also clicking the like button, for sharing far and wide, and for leaving some kind words as a review as you are authentically inspired. As well, if you are gleaning any value whatsoever from these shows, consider supporting me on Locals and or Patreon. And as you are wanting to learn more about my quantum languaging coaching and consulting services or nab copies of my books, find me on dannycats.com as well as on quantumlanguaging.com. Okay, I think that's it for our housekeeping. Buckle up and prepare to enjoy this episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. Well, hello, superstars, and welcome back to another episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. Today, it is my great pleasure and joy to be joined by the lovely Miss Emily Moyer. Now, you might know Emily from the podcast that she and I do together called Words. You might know Emily from her podcasting days with Randy Mougins of Off Planet Radio. You might know Emily from her wild, conspiratorial, synchro-mystic explorations on her own podcast and all the sub-series that she has going over there. And you might not have heard of Emily Moyer at 
all. Regardless, today was my opportunity to dive into Emily's origin story and to explore how she became such an expansive thinker, such an incorrigible rebel, such a delightful human. Before we dive into today's conversation, I am reminding you to and thanking you for clicking that like button. Um, no, clicking that subscribe bu button. Yes, clicking the like button and clicking the subscribe button and sharing and commenting and doing all of those algorithm nudging things. I'm also inviting you to sign up for my newsletter at dannycats.com. The big tech shenanigans don't seem to be slowing their roll anytime soon. So you signing up for my newsletter is the best way to ensure that we get to stay in touch, that you get to stay apprised, of my every next book drop, live event, course, webinar, you will know when my pop propaganda digital course is really truly ready for you to dive into. Um, it's just the best way for us to stay in touch in the face of so much ridiculous censorship. Also reminding you that this show, like all of my shows, is divided into two halves. The first half is free for the public on all of the audio podcast platforms, as well as on Locals and Odyssey. The second half is available for my paying supporters on Locals and on Patreon. Take your pick, whichever platform feels most aligned for you. For as little as $5 a month, you will get access to all of my second half conversations. For as little as $10 a month, you also get access to Words, which is the podcast that I do with today's special guest, Emily Moyer, um, although today is not one of those shows. Just giving you a full lay of the land so that you can make an informed decision as to your best support options um, moving forward with me. Also reminding you that my latest book, The Language of Betterarchy, is on sale now, is available in print, ebook, and audiobook formats. Also, super excited to announce that my book, Prop Propaganda, an Illustrated Guide, has received a much-needed upgrade. There was one tiny factual error in it that had been bugging me for two years, and I'd also received some feedback on um, the corresponding illustration. Uh, and then because of a lot of backend issues with KDP, it took two years to execute, and I'm thrilled to announce that it has been executed. So um, pop propaganda has received a much needed revision, extra points for anyone who actually notices what this revision is. That book is on sale now, makes a great gift for the teens and grownups in your life. Last reminder, um, my pop propaganda homeschool course is in the process of being digitized, will drop January of 2024. This is an 11 module course, um, same material that I teach to my homeschool teens, although this version I've made it so that it is palatable for teens and grownups alike. It is on presale now. If you would prefer to wait till it's good to go, Again, sign up for my newsletter so that you can be notified as soon as it's ready. I'm gonna be hosting it on Locals, it looks like. I'm 99% sure, so there'll be a really fun community aspect to that. That does it for housekeeping. Buckle up and prepare to enjoy my conversation with the lovely Emily Moyer.
together for over five years now. We have. But this is your first time on my podcast where I get to grill you. It's very exciting. I, I feel and I feel honored to be your test, your your test run for for your new endeavor. Thank you. This is my way to like sneak us in to the ah, new endeavor. Not yeah. really, but it's just just worked out that way. So you are one of the most expansive original thinkers that I know. And that's saying a lot because I know some really out of the box thinkers, but the way your mind works, it's like there are no boxes, there are no boundaries, it, it goes everywhere. And I'm wondering, were you always like that? Were you thinking outside of the box to this extent as a kid before you did psychedelics or did something happen that like unlocked your mind? I mean, it's hard to say because, you know, when you're a kid, like your mind is your mind and you don't think of it as being different or separate than everybody else's per se, right? Like I do think that um, I was probably, my dad treated me much more like an adult than most kids get treated. Like there was not a lot of rules when I was a kid, right? And so I was exposed to uh, things probably earlier than most kids are, which left me um, easily offended by anyone telling me there was something that I could not do or I could not look at or I could not think about or whatnot. So I think my 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 range was expanded earlier than most kids because of that. Um, and then I think that the, and I know this is like, sounds strange on some level to, to people who don't have this experience. I think gymnastics uh, makes me what I consider like a kinesthetic thinker or a kinesthetic seer. Like I think having to understand where, I was a gymnast like you, it's for the people who are, who are listening to this. And I started gymnastics when I was two. So it was part of my sort of sensing my place in the world, literally, right? Like, I think that it isn't just what you see in front of yourself that you have to worry about in gymnastics. You need to know, like, completely how to maneuver yourself, you know, sort of omnidirectionally, you know, like, at any moment. Um, and, you know, and so I think like awareness of where I am sort of in my space around myself, you know, kind of affected the way that I think as well. Everything that I look at, like I'm kind of looking at it the way, remember when we were learning how to do like full turns on the beam and they would teach you how to spot, right? Yes. So I always understood that there was like a point that everything else was sort of revolving around or moving around. Um, and that that point could be moved because where the spot on the wall that we did on one beam was different than the one on the next beam over or when we were on the floor. Or if you went from turning this way to doing a flip, then you were spotting like the ground or the ceiling or, or, or a spot in front of yourself differently. And I think that that's how I see sort of the information environment. If I kind of change the position that I'm sort of focused on or the position that I'm focusing from, I see a completely different sort of array or arrangement of everything else around that. Um, so I think it's that. Um, and then also, you know, I from the time I was little, I had this feeling that there was something my parents weren't telling. And, and when I was a kid, I think it felt very focused on me. Like that I'm the one being kept in the dark, that everybody else knows some secret or whatever it is. Um, and, and as I've grown up, 
I realize that it's like, no, it's like most of the world being kept in the dark about some things that a small group of people may have more information about. But I think having that feeling from the time that I was little kept me looking for the Easter eggs or looking for little nuggets or clues or whatever it is. If my parents are keeping a secret from me, they've done a damn good job of it. And and it beats like everything else about them. Like they've not like they've faltered in almost every other way than in keeping whatever secret they were supposed to. So I don't know what that is and if my suspicions were were right about them or not. But I became very crafty very early at like finding whatever it was that I thought was being hidden from me. Um, it, you know, even though I somehow don't think I've gotten to the the final prize yet. You know? Interesting. When you were talking about um, spotting on full turns on the beam and that like kind of kinesthetic awareness, I was thinking of the twisting belt. Were you? Did they ever put you in the twisting belt? It's so that, weird. Yeah, it's so weird. Like it really confounded me. You know, <laughs> such a mind bender as a kid, how that worked. And I wonder if just like being in that kind of lent itself to a mental acuity that you just like kind of picked up on and ran with. It's possible. Like I don't, I wasn't in the spotting belt or the twisting belt a whole bunch because it was one of those things that I wasn't particularly comfortable with. I don't actually feel like what doing gymnastic skills and the spotting belt felt like in any way represents what it feels like when you're not in the belt. Um, and so like, it wasn't something like when I was little, I wanted to do it because the older girls were doing it. And then I got in there. I'm like, yeah, this ain't all that. But for people who, who don't know what that is, like this, the twisting belt would be like, you're in this belt that normally just helps you flip sort of upside down and over, but the twisting belt, <clears throat> like you're, there's like a two bands like two metal bandings and one of them is loose and not fixed. So within being upside down, it also allows you um, to twist. And so it's kind of like being like restrained on one level, but completely free on the other level in this very um, disorienting kind of way. So disorienting. Uh, so I think that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Like, I think the way that I more think about it is like, did you ever learn how to do a blind change? What's a blind change? So it's a technique for pirouetting on bars. Like there's two ways that you can pirouette. I'm sure the people who are, I'm sure people who aren't gymnasts are fascinated by this conversation. <laughs> but there's one way where you can see and you turn, you're turning your hand backwards and then you're moving the other hand around. And then yep. a blind change would be you're just completely going the other way and you can't actually watch what your hands are doing. You're just trusting that based on like your technique and knowing where you are in space that you're going to end up in the position that you sort of want to be in. Right. It's, yep. it's right. Um, and so, you know, like, I think that there's ways of, of orienting yourself in reality where you can like be very safe and, and like know every step, step you took along the way. And then there's other ways where you kind of have to take this psychic leap, but it's a psychic leap based on trusting yourself, not a psychic leap, just being like, why not? Right. Um, and, and, and I do that a lot, right? Like I, I, I take, you know, uh, like I, I fall, I, I'm really good at following logic trains, whether they're my own logic train or someone else's. And then when I get to a point where suddenly I'm, I'm at an impasse or I can't, I can't get to the next step, 
right? I just kind of make a jump and go, I don't have an evidence for where I'm going. You know, I don't have the evidence to lead me to where I'm going next, but this is what my intuition says it's going to be. So I will jump and proceed as if I proved evidence all along the way. And I will just continue with my research. And eventually, nine times out of 10, eventually, information appears that fills that gap and that, that you know, makes what was sort of a flying leap or a wild hypothesis, in fact, like a reasonable idea or theory. Mm-hmm. And so my experience with gymnastics is that it was terrifying. And like time and time again, I was put in situations that were like exponentially more scary than the next. You know, it was like, okay, do a flip on the floor. Okay, do a flip on the low beam. Okay, do a flip on the high beam. Okay, do two flips on, like all of those things. And when I look back on it, I'm like, that's an insane amount of fear for children to be facing. Do you feel like being put in that circumstance over and over and over again for all your years as a gymnast also contributed to the path that you're walking today? Yeah, I mean, like, we definitely were like confronting, like, you know, death (laughs) or or severe injury at a younger age than, than most people were. I wouldn't say I was an overly fearful gymnast. I had like one or two things I was highly afraid of. And that was it. And everything else I kind of wasn't. Um, But how I dealt with that was definitely different. I mean, I stayed in gymnastics longer than you did. Like I started when I was two and like, I probably had my last workout (laughs) per se, like somewhere around like 21 or 22. Right. Um, You know, and then I continued a little bit of staying in sort of gymnastic shape because I got into breakdancing, like into my mid to late 20s or whatever it is, right? Um, but like the way that I sort of dealt with that as I got older uh, was different than, than younger. Like I, I would say that um, even though like the, 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 the sort of through line for me was backward tumbling that I had some issues of fear with, but everything else, I kind of was able to think my way through it, you know, and, and, and just learn to go for it in terms of, like uh, generally coaches are not so stupid that they want you to do something that like if they have, think there's like a good chance that you're going to hurt yourself, at least not the coaches that I had. So I kind of learned to just throw myself into it one time with them spotting. Right. And then start to try and figure it out from there, like not to try and make too much sense of it. Just like be like, OK, I either trust this person and I don't or I don't. But since I trust this person, I'm just going to like do what they're saying. And then I'll start to sort of figure out how I want to manage my body and space to, you know, perfect this or learn to do it by myself. And sometimes I couldn't like there were some skills I worked on for like a long time and never really was able to get my my mind or my body around. And then there were other skills that like made sense to me right away. And most things were somewhere in in the middle. Um and also like there's different techniques for doing, I mean, this is a, you know, this is one of these things with the sport like gymnastics. Like it's very easy to identify people who have textbook, good technique, and then people who have terrible technique. But there's this other thing where some people are able to sort out certain techniques or ways of doing a skill for them based on like their body type or sort of the way that they move. 
Um, and a lot of times that's where you'll get unique skills that get named after a gymnast and really no one else can do it. Or when they try and do it, it looks completely different or whatever it is. And, you know, I kind of liked to tinker in that finding my own way to accomplish essentially the same thing that everyone else was doing, because I, I was a little bit not flexible as a gymnast, like my, you know, particularly, um, you know, when I was younger, it was more in the lower extremities. And as I got older, I was more flexible in the lower extremities, but became increasingly tight in the upper extremities. So sometimes I had to figure out my own way to do things. And at a certain point, like, I liked that. Like, you know, it, it worked for me. And, you know, like, if it didn't work for for someone else, that's fine. I can still explain to them what I was doing and they can choose to, <laughs> to understand why it worked for me or not. And that's kind of how I feel about information, right? So... That makes sense. That definitely makes sense. And because today's focus is on your origin story and how you became the awesome independent thinker that you are, like most people who I interview, I'm like, what was the thing that clued you into the sham show? But since we're talking about gymnastics, when did you start to suspect that something fishy was going on in our gymnastics training and that you had been fucked with there? Um, so, I mean, I think to be, to be honest, like, I don't feel like the fucking around was so much, um, with training. Like, like I, I don't, I think the fucking around was more in the other hours spent in the gym, which were not specifically doing gymnastics. Right. So, um, you know, I think most of the coaches that I had throughout the course of my life ranged from, not great to excellent, right? I don't think I ever had like a horrible coach. Um, I definitely had a few coaches that were like a little weird, um, you know, but the weirdest people were one were like generally coaches that were not my personal coach, but were like around the gym as like recreational coaches or as like someone who was hired for a little while and I never really worked with them or maybe just once or twice but they were always around the gym. Right. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of time at the gym when I was a kid that wasn't always structured. Right. And, um, you know, so much of it when I was really little, like when I, in, you know, prior to 10, prior to eight or something like that, um, there were certain coaches that just made me feel uncomfortable, um, in ways that, uh, I can't explain. Right. And I mean, now I know as the same way that I feel uncomfortable around someone who, who I would never want to go on a date with or never want to like share living quarters with or a room with or something like that. Right. But as a kid, you don't know why, right. As a kid, like you don't know why this person is making you feel uncomfortable. You just know that they are. And then I kind of compounded it with like, there was a lot of things I didn't remember about those time periods. And then later these coaches would get like fired or disappear quickly with no explanation. Um, and, and eventually like one or two of them did get in trouble for being inappropriate either physically or sexually with girls at the gym. Um, there was more of them that were a little weird than that got in trouble, but usually they were kind of gone before too much was, was made about it. Um, you know, as I got older, uh, and I started to 
know what some of these things meant. I had like, uh, you know, a high level of suspicion that, you know, Southern California was a hotbed of uh, pedophiles in the gymnastics community. Um, and over the course of the last like eight to 10 years and various people coming out and investigations happening, um, that has proven to be correct. There was, you know, and in fact, for me, it's true even of some of the schools that I went to, um, you know, like the uh, one of the high schools that I went to has been, you know, there's been some articles coming out just in the court over the course of the last year or two about it being a hotbed of pedophilia as well. So like, it seems that there was no place I spent time as a child where this wasn't going on. I don't know if this is unique to Southern California. Mean, I know there's other places where this happens. I don't know if everywhere else it's like as ubiquitous as it seems to have been in Southern California in the late seventies through like the, the mid eighties or early nineties, maybe at the latest. Um, but I think that, you know, wherever, um, wherever there's high performing people with a lot of charisma, right, you're going to attract all kinds of things to that. You're going to attract great help and you're going to attract weirdos, right? Like, it, you know, and um, gymnastics, because of the rigors of it, like the there's almost nobody you can find who's like a high level gymnast that um, at some point hasn't, uh, you know, received coaching or training that for most people would border on, would border on or be clearly abusive, um, you know? And so when you grow up with that, you don't know the difference between a hard coach or a strict coach or an abusive coach. Like it starts to become a little bit more clear later. And a lot of it is, you know, it's subtle in its differences. Um, but I think part of it is just like the sort of disillusion or delusion that we're put into as kids um, in the gymnastics environment. It, it makes it almost impossible to suss out uh, appropriate from inappropriate until you're an adult. And even then, like you're just going back and recalling based on like who made you feel weird, <laughs> right? <laughs> kind of thing. Um, I wasn't surprised. Like I had been speaking out about abuse in gymnastics before the Larry Nasser thing became a thing. Um, and it, so even though it's been shocking to everybody else, like the, 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 how vast his, his, you know, campaign of abuse was, was not shocking to me. But I also fear that uh, in gymnastics and in the athletic world in general, like the same thing has happened that is happening uh, sort of in that political or social cultural realm with Jeffrey Epstein, that there's a desire to like make it seem like, oh, there's really just one monster or just a few, but like they're in jail or they're dead. So it really isn't that big of a problem anymore. Um, and it, it, it's not like it's, it's very, it's widespread and um, you know, it's uh it's a cultural problem. It isn't a, an individual problem. It's interesting because at the time when we were in gymnastics, like, you know, for me growing up, Nadia was, you know, she was like the end all be all. And she came from Romania and Fritz was the only Eastern European coach in Southern California. And so that whole like no pain, no gain, like push was something that 
was appreciated and lauded. And there was, I notice a difference now, like I'll do these um, like Pilates or yoga classes on glow. And I notice that most of the women will be like, you got it, just five more, like push it, like you can do it. And it has remnants of how we grew up without the abuse. And then there are some like more effeminate men who are like, and if it's too hard, just take a break. Just <laughs> and I'm just like, whoa, I don't know what paradigm that is, but that has nothing to do with my exercise paradigm. But I, you know, that was just at the time. And, you know, my parents, it was like, whatever the coaches said was the law and they didn't care about my opinion or what I was reporting back to them. You know, it was just like, you're lucky to be in this gym kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think our parents maybe are kind of similar. Like I think my dad just saw me as like a bright manipulative kid who like had a creative imagination and would try to get out of things that she didn't want to do. And so when I would complain about something, like I think he would think it was that. And to be fair and honest, like sometimes he was right. Like that isn't completely wrong. Um, But there was definitely... um, that buys a lot of like leeway for a lot of coaches. Right. And like, to be clear, like what you're talking about. Yeah. And like, for me, like I'm kind of hardcore, like I'm kind of okay with things being hard, especially as I've gotten older. Like when I was younger, like I just didn't understand, like intellectually, you don't understand like why the harder thing is better for you than the fun thing. Like, you know, but um, you know, I'm always careful. Like abuse is not okay. Right. But there are like degrees and departments. Right. And like I never felt like Fritz was like sexually weird. Right. Like I felt like he was just like angry and mean. And he and came from a background where that was like how it was done. Right. Um, You know, and then there's other coaches that weren't angry and mean, but were like emotionally weird or physically weird or abusive or touched you in funny ways, but like would be almost your best friend was like nice to you. Didn't make you conditioned to like, right. So, and when you're a kid, like it's really difficult because when you're a kid, everything is about, is this fun? Is this person nice? Do I like this? And like, when you're older, it's really more like, did this person tell me the truth? Was this person in integrity? Right. And so some sometimes, and you saw this with the, the victims of Larry Nasser about how he would give them candy and some of them thought he was their friend. Right. And so, and because you're in this environment where there's all this strictness around, if someone is showing you some compassion, you're somehow weirdly willing to overlook something else that they do that like might be out of line. And you might not, even, as a kid, you either don't know it or you overlook it because like it was a safe harbor about something else. Right. It's a super complex situation. And like, I'm watching the gymnastics community now try to find its footing again in this post Larry Nasser, post Caroli period of time. Um, and, and it's hard to know what the right answer is. Like, sometimes I feel like, okay, like they're going a little too far and it's like, this is getting really controlling in terms of like, what is allowed and what is not allowed. But maybe that's the full swing we need to go through because there was like so no rules for so long. So I don't know. Like, we'll see. Um, You know, it's a gymnastics is a completely different world now than it was when I was a kid. There are some through lines that are the same, but like the like the orientation of the people has completely changed like the Right. And the same thing could be said about like gymnastics. I see, I see the sporting cultures as like 
little microcosms of the macrocosm, right? And you, you know, like I also spend a lot of time with tennis. I'm not a tennis player. I'm like probably the worst tennis player in the world, but I'm obsessed with watching it. And, and, and I, and I love to sort of glean information about the world at large based on this like smaller world of tennis and the archetypes that are within it. Um, and it's very interesting. It's a completely different subculture than the gymnastics subculture, but it also represents something that we're going through, you know, in the sort of greater picture. So we shall see. <laughs> so there's like the standard issue gymnastics fuckery that I think we've all heard about and isn't all that shocking. And when you and I reconnected as adults post gymnastics, um, you were very like patient and compassionate in like, asking a couple questions or just kind of inviting me to reflect to see if I had started to put any of the pieces together. And you had mentioned during one of those earlier conversations, the gym sleepovers. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned in this, like that the weird stuff didn't happen while we were training. And when you had asked me about that, I said, yeah, after all the sleepovers, I would have these weird, like kind of burns behind my ears as though they were being separated from like my skull and you said oh yeah that's from the i don't know if it was like time travel headband or whatnot but like when did you start to figure out that that level of weirdness was happening in gymnastics so okay so now we've moved from like focus on like the standard issue like sexual or physical abuse into like <laughs> like off the books um programs right uh, okay so like i too have like this weird these weird things that i get um behind my ears uh, i still get them um and like to me at this point like i kind of understand it as like some sort of pitch or sonic type of event right um i have a lot of issues with my ears um that I, I, like I, there's a there's a lot of things that 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 could sort of explain, but for my own self and my own research into my own life, because that's really what I focus on, and then whatever people want to extrapolate from that, they can. Um, I, I discovered that you know my, my geo was the gym that 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 we went to right in in Southern California. And that I went there because that was the only gym in Los Angeles that my mother's company would pay for. So I found out my mother's company was paying for my gymnastics. My mother worked for the Atlantic Richfield Corporation, ARCO. So for people who grew up in Southern California, like AMPM, ARCO Station. Um, and there's, um, you know, I don't know. Geo was the only gym in the Los Angeles area at that time that was a nonprofit organization. So my there's like the 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 sort of um sure there's the like the easy explanation that like oh they wanted to have it as a write off for the company, they make a donation, it's a write off and I'm sure that's true. Right? But I also noticed when I looked back at some of the old yearbooks from Geo that like all of the like a lot of the donations and ads were coming from like Raytheon and, you know, all of these other kinds of companies that, um, you know, are part of shaping the part of our culture that we're not allowed or encouraged to know about. And if you go looking into 
patents held by Arco, there's all kinds of weird things like connected to, um, you know, free energy technologies to, um, and, and those things correlate with, you know, let's just say like other kinds of temporal or dimensional movements. The guy who started uh, Arco like owns the uh, like the UFO or the alien museum in Roswell, New Mexico. Right. And so at that time, when I, I think at that time when that you're talking about, I was really deep into looking at uh, the secret space program kind of information. And instinctively, I always felt like when people started talking about that in the conspiratorial realm, that, there was something to it, but it was like not quite as what was being presented. And that um, a, a lot of times when we're talking, when we're being told something is about like space travel or or space in general, it's really about time and dimension as opposed to like outer space and the way that we think about it. And so I was looking at a lot of these technologies that sort of... Um, take people into um, out of out of body or out of time kind of states. Um, a lot of things with like sound and light and energy fields and whatnot. And this seemed to be the kind of uh, remnants or injury, if you will say, or effect of like some of those technologies. If I recall, it was like a while ago that we sort of talked about that. But it, it it's still to this to to this day, whenever I have like a, a very specific kind of outside the box experience, it always seems to be accompanied by this effect in it like around my ears. And I don't know what that means exactly. Like I don't know if it's like a pitch that does that, if it's a frequency. I don't know if it's like some state that's achieved inside of my body in terms of like the way that I metabolize things or methylate something or the way that my body processes something. Um, but it's, it's always coupled. There's no like uh, that behind my ears that hasn't been accompanied by some strange experience. <laughs> right. So I don't know that that's like, the kind of evidence that's going to get us very far in terms of proving anything, but that's not really my point. It's like we live in a much more uh, intricate and complex environment than, than what's been explained to us, although what they've explained to us is, is intricate and complex. Um, and the only thing that you can really do to start to classify experiences that you've had that don't match up to like the known set of experiences that people have is to start to pay attention to what things are always characteristic of the experience. And that was one that I caught on to really early. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I love about you, and there are many, is that like nothing's too weird for you. I can throw out some bizarro um, theory that I'm playing with that I'm worried most people are going to judge me as crazy for, and you always extend um, the potentiality of belief my way. Um, you're very generous in that way. So in terms of like your unraveling of indoctrination and in programs and when you got so open, like I know in 2008, even though this is still very hard for me 
to embrace, you voted for Obama. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing that up until that point, you were still pretty invested in consensus reality, giving it your allegiance in some way. So what was the linchpin when you were like, this is all bullshit? So I think, yeah, no, very good. Yes, I, I voted for Barack Obama. And, um, I, you know, the, the shift happened for me really quickly in terms of like, being pro Obama to like, Oh my God, like this is a fucking disaster. Like I remember and I, I, I went to South Africa during the period of time between when Obama was elected and when he was inaugurated. Okay. And the people in South Africa and Mozambique and we were in South Africa, Mozambique and Swaziland would look at us and point and go Obama. Right. Like, cause they identified us, especially like if we were crossing at the border and they saw that we were American, they'd go, Oh yeah, Obama. Right. It was like very interesting to, to see that. And in fact, like they have all this merchandise in South Africa, purses, you know, like tie dyed hair turbans, this and that, like that have Mandela on it, but they now had them with Barack Obama. In fact, I bought one that had Obama on it. I then returned to the United States. I went to the inauguration because my sister was living in Washington, D.C. And the energy in Washington, D.C. that day was palpable. Like the feeling of electricity, of, of hope, of people really feeling like we were on the brink of some change in reality that was exciting and would make their life better. The only time I've ever felt like energy that palpable and thick is it raves. Right. Like I also have spent a lot of time going to warehouse parties and raves and whatever in my life. And sometimes you end up at one where like the whole party was like moving in unison with each other. And this was what that was like. Was and were crazy. you running that energy yourself as well at that time? Uh, I don't think I thought that hard about it. Like, I don't think I cared that much about politics, but it was like, this is fun. Wow. This is cool. Right. Like that was kind of how I felt about it. Right. Like I was already um, a few years into like becoming deeply conspiratorial, but like the, it hadn't become like a left, right issue for me yet. Right. It, so it was, what were the conspiracies that you were into at that point? So at that point I was really beginning to look into like, so I, the, the thing that sort of popped my conspiracy cherry was the, um, the dark Alliance and Gary Webb and the Iran Contra and the crack cocaine sort of ball of wax. Mm -hmm. And, uh, like that. And I, I, how I learned about that was in this class that I was taking was the weirdest thing. I was taking a class at CSUN called the sociology of drug use that by the way, was never taught again after that semester. Right. I don't know what happened to that teacher. Um, but as part of the course, we learned about that. And then another thing that was in that course was like a very cursory look at this sort of publicly acceptable version of MKUltra, which is like, oh, okay, they were giving LSD to guys in in brothels and then interrogating them and things like that. And and which is bad enough in and of itself. But like I I, I thought that was I, there was something about the term MKUltra that like had a vibration to me that felt like what this is something that I know and this is something that is more than what this is saying. So I began researching MKUltra and 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 then the thing with the Gary Webb and the 
the Iran-Contra and whatever sort of led me to my beginning to understand the concept of um, problem reaction solution or Hegelian dialectic. So, prob, uh, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis type of thing. Um, and so I was still like, it was still very much um, government is uh, oppressive of certain groups of people as opposed to government is an oppressive force period and in general, <laughs> right? Like I was very much a left-wing individual, like my family are all Democrats and of the left and whatnot. And so I was still in that sort of mindset of that, you know, like uh, government is a problem um, but the solution to it is to get the right people in there and that those people should not be Republicans and, you know, whatever it was. Right. Um, so. So anyway, so I had this day in, in, in Washington, D.C., and that was in January of 2009. And I'd say somewhere around three weeks later. Um, I was uh, beginning to uh, distrust this person. Um, and um, I, I think, you know, like it just felt like uh, pretty quickly he started making friends with the Republicans in Congress and, you know, like all the stuff with like John Boehner and like they, it just it didn't seem it, it seemed like the things that you always see with all these these uh, candidates is like what they're saying on the campaign trail is completely different than what they say as soon as they're actually there. Right. Um, so I was starting to not trust this person. And then <clears throat> I, 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 you know, I, I think I just, um, I became disillusioned pretty quickly um, with him and then started researching, like started, you know, started researching things and within a few weeks or months was like kind of like exploring libertarianism, like Repub being a Republican never appealed to me. Right. But like I found sort of a little bit of libertarianism. Um, and then I'd say within like six or eight months, maybe less, maybe three months of starting to distrust Obama, I was like completely, I call it a voluntarist, but some people call it an anarchist, uh, completely outside. And that was the last time I ever voted for anyone. I never voted for anyone again. And, and I can't see myself voting ever again. <laughs> Why? Right. Why don't you vote? Um. Uh, for like, I don't consent to this system, right? Like, I don't believe that there's any person out there that I need to represent me, that I'm capable of representing myself. Um, and that, you know, you can't say you don't like the system, but then continue to participate in it when you are like the, the rules of the system are as such, right? Like, you know, do you not you pay your taxes. At this point, I still do pay my taxes because I'm not interested in jail. <laughs> but, um, you know, I have gone, I, I went through a long period of my life where I didn't do any on the books work because I didn't want to pay taxes. And I got to a space where um, I would have had to continue to keep it. My life would have had to stay a certain amount small. And there was like other things I wanted to do, you know, in, in life and I, experiences that I wanted to have. And um, you know, so like I've always done the best I can to uh, minimize my that part of it. Um, but I don't like this. Um, and, you know, to, and, and to me, um, one of the questions I have 
to, to everyone because, you know, the people on the left think it's the right that it's the problem. The people on the right think it's the left that's the problem. But I don't know anyone who thinks what we have now is good, right? So why don't we just defund it? Why don't we just defund it? And then we can sort out what we should do about it. Um, and I think it's a much more, uh, uh, it, it would have a much more de 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 deeply felt impact if we all were just like, yeah, I'm not paying for this at the same time. <laughs> so I encourage that. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, for me, though, I just, I'm not going to sign. I'm not going to check a box saying I prefer this person. But if it's the other person, I'm okay with that. And also, like, I just don't need a boss of me. Like, I don't need someone to be in charge of me. And as for, like, tax paying, per se, like, I definitely don't want to pay for this. But I do live in a society. And there are things that don't even necessarily personally affect me that I would be willing to pay for, right? Like, I'm not opposed. I understand, like, you know, mutual aid or community assistance or these kinds of things. Um, there's lots of things that I'm not willing to pay for. And so, you know, I don't like this is one of those things that, you know, like I, I, if there was no government and no taxes, I would be very happy and very thankful. And also, there's probably things that I would want to do with my money that um, are helpful to people other than myself. And the fact that like, that isn't what this is, is infuriating. Um, you know, so I don't know. Um, I admire people who still don't pay taxes and who, 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 you know, do all the things they want to do and don't pay taxes. And I have not narrowed out that fear in myself. I haven't sort of whittled away the distance between what I know to be right and my fear of what might happen to me. So it's a bridge I still have to cross. <laughs> it's really humanizing. Like it's super real, you know, there's like what we know. And then there's also like weighing the consequences of, you know, standing on that hill. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for a long time, I didn't do take any on the books work or any on the books work that I did take I had to stay under a certain amount of money. And then I had to kind of cut that off. And at a certain point, it was like, oh, I'm going to be living with my dad forever if I continue doing it, <laughs> right? <laughs> so when you started getting into conspiracy, I know the world was super different. So I'm guessing that it didn't mean that you lost family and friends back then. Is that is that accurate? <laughs> oh, no, it was fucking way worse. Really? So yeah, what I was mean, that like? So, you know... For me, it also went along with some other stuff, right? Like during the, those were also drugging years for me. And so I probably wasn't the best representative for an alternative viewpoint at that time. Um, but I say all the same things now that I used to say then. And um, a lot of people who had a real problem with it have become more tolerant of it or are humored by it or whatever it is now. So I think part of it is just that it's more pervasive now. Like when I was uh, first stumbling upon this stuff, I didn't know anyone else who thought what I thought about the world. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then, or maybe I would know some meet someone who like had one thing in common. Like it was pretty easy to get people to agree with me about the Iran Contra and the the crack cocaine, you know, being like a you know government conspiracy and and whatever it is. But they were they were in agreement with me from a social justice perspective, as opposed to oh, this is like the template for for the way everything is, right? That like there's no like all the problems we have in the world are not naturally occurring. They're all orchestrated in a way to create this sort of, you know, extremely compartmentalized divisive experience for us to all live in. Right. Um, so it, it was more when, when the things I started looking into um, started to bump up against what left-wing individuals think of as like John Birch conspiracies or far-right extreme conspiracies that I didn't even know who John Birch was, right? Like I didn't, I mean, I, I hardly knew any Republicans like other than people at the gym, like when I was a kid because of the circles my family went into. So this idea that I had been somehow secretly exposed to all of this right-wing stuff, like I didn't see it that way. Now, I understand now that there's like, um, you know, a lot of people who first started talking about this, some of these things at a certain point, you know, either were members of some of those kind of organizations or had some crossover. Right. But I also know that like you and I end up in conversations with people who we have, we don't agree about anything else other than the one topic we're talking to them about. So just like association is not, you know, doesn't imply that you like agree with the whole thing. But it was weird how people thought that like I was like some kind of right wing individual because of the things that I was exploring. So wait, I just because I want to back this up. So this was like what time period that that these associations were being projected onto you? Um, I'd say like uh in the 2000 like really as soon as i started like questioning you know 911 yeah. um right which i'd say was like probably in like 2006 mm -hmm. so for me like the mk ultra and the gary webb stuff and all that came before mm -hmm. before the 911 stuff mm -hmm. right and it was a natural extension for me of those other things I didn't understand that, like, you know, most people's perception of questioning 9-11, like, boiled down to the, it or, or like, it originating somehow from, like, Alex Jones or, or people, like, I didn't know who Alex Jones was until, uh, until I started looking into 9-11. I didn't learn about it from him, right? <laughs> um, so, I think, so it was that when I started to question 9-11, Right. And then when I started looking into like the origins of our money system, right, like and then that sort of starts to align you with Republicans or libertarians or like people who want an Austrian economic system just because you're questioning the Federal Reserve and whatnot. And so it was very weird for me because I would get accused of being things that I had never even heard of. <laughs> That's so interesting. And I wonder if this is kind of a Mandela effect thing, because I, you know, for me, I think it was like taxes, Aaron Russo, you know, that whole thing and 9-11 combined. But mm -hmm. I was working, I was producing the news at KPFK during 9-11. And that's when I started unraveling things in the newsroom. We were reporting on chemtrails. 
So I had always identified as a libertarian since I was a kid, but as I started to unravel those pieces in Southern California at KPFK living, you know, in Topanga Canyon, those all seemed like extreme left wing. And I didn't experience the right wing projection until Trump. So I find it interesting that you experienced that so much earlier. I mean, I think some of it was just, you know, maybe like because of my family of that, like my family, right? Like I was, most of my social scene at that time was like the rave culture, right? Um, you know, I was out of gymnastics at that point. I don't, I don't know. Like it was a bunch of weird things kind of happening and coming together. Um, and people thought I was nuts. Right. And, and like, even some like close friends of mine look at me like I was crazy. And then every once in a while they would go home and like, look up what I said. And then once they looked it up, sometimes they would come back to me and be like, okay, like I see what you're talking about, but they would never acknowledge that like in front of everybody else, right? To this day, like I will, I always say this to people and I'm not saying this for like uh, any points on anything, right? But the only thing that I have ever been um, discriminated against in any way or like ostracized for in any way are my conspiratorial viewpoints um, about what might be going on in the world. Like I've never, uh, to my knowledge, and if it's, you know, maybe this happened, but if, it, if I don't think it did, then does it even matter? I've not lost opportunities in life because I'm a woman or because I'm Jewish or because I, you know, I'm in a same sex relationship or anything like that. It's always been like, oh, she's a little, she's a little weird. She's a conspiracy theorist. She thinks some crazy shit about the world. Um, you know, and so this idea, um, to me, that, you know, that the conspiracy position is a privileged position, like, you know, in terms of like, my dad would sit there and say, oh, like, it's only because you're so privileged, you can kind of sit there and have these kind of, he doesn't say that now, right? But back then he did. And I was like, you know, I'm sitting in my room by myself, because no one will sit with me when I talk about this. Not, <laughs> you know, that was the way I perceived it then, right? So, yeah. I don't know, but, um, you know, I de definitely did not have a group of friends that was into this, like uh, diving into this realm until like from 2005 until 2017 was a solo experience. And then in 2017 or 2016, sorry, 2016, you know, I started to co-host Off Planet Radio with Randy. And um, that was the first time like I ever had friends that, you know, had similar viewpoints or or whatever right interesting in terms of the conspiratorial stuff it that's fascinating it definitely has me leaning into mandala a little bit because well i mean all we have are our own perspectives and our own experiences i was never marginalized for conspiracy stuff until 2016 that's when it all started that i'm aware of yeah yeah no i mean but you also like you were you were you were living a different kind of life like life in Los Angeles than than I sort of ever did right like right. I you know I, I um I moved pretty quickly from the gymnastics subculture into like the dance music subculture um and both of them are all encompassing and um 
don't leave a lot of room for deep thought. At least in the early days of when you first, like when you're very much into the raves and whatever, it's like, you know, rave until you've dropped, sleep, repeat. Right. And, and so like, I don't know that I ever had conversations about politics or anything like that with those people at that time. It's very different now. Right. right? Um, but like in the nineties with, with like rave culture, like, I don't know, like it was, I, it was not like that. So um, at a certain point, like all my rave friends went away from me because they were like, ah, shit's fucking, she's crazy. Oh, they're all still like, most of them don't agree with me. Right. <laughs> right. No, that makes sense. I used to get that in my, my dance community was a contemporary dance community, but I'm remembering like, oh, right. They never liked it. They didn't want to go too deep. It was like, let's just keep it surface and dance and play. Which on some levels is nice. Right. But it, it is weird when you like begin to feel ostracized by a community that is supposedly about like accepting everybody, but it's like, well, it, like we'll accept you as long as you don't talk about anything that's difficult. Right. So. Well, and that's that was kind of what I came to realize about my dance community in L.A., which was very like kind of avant garde and on the edge of contemporary dance was like you could go far out in the dance realm, but they still wanted a consensus reality mindset among the participants who were being weird in terms of their expression. Mm -hmm. but you can do both. <laughs> that's 100%. definitely true them. A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely agree with you about that. And as for like the Mandela effects thing, like what, just out of curiosity, because I have, I don't hear you talk about Mandela. First of all, you, you say Mandela or you say it funny. I'm sure I say it wrong. <laughs> no, no, but they think that's more correct, right? I think it would be more correct to call it a Mandela effect rather than a Mande the Mandela effect. Okay. Uh, and so I think your inflection is actually like, informative about the truth about what might be going on here but like from your perception what is that so from my perception it's um like that we're operating in, in different dimensions or different timelines and that signifies by subtle shifts in our experience or memories or ephemera and i think i blew it off as silliness a few years ago but at this point like the more that i continue to unravel i realize like we don't all have shared experiences i learned that during the like fovid situation where people were like in fear and would only touch things with gloves and it's like that whatever that is they're doing is they're living in a different reality than I am. Um, and so realizing that it could be very true that being a conspiracy theorist in the early 2000s was associated with right wing radicalization in someone else's reality, even though in my reality, that was actually considered more left wing radicalization. You know, it's just um, for me, it's just realizing like we all live in so many different worlds and they don't necessarily cross or meet or share any sort of like then touch over. Are you, so like, this is what, one thing I will say is like during the first couple years for me, like in that conspiratorial realm, like some of my favorite people were people who are considered left-wing conspiracy theorists. And there weren't very many of them, but they always like, I like Dave McGowan was my, like, and still is, like one of my favorites, right? But there was others, there's like John Potash, 
Um, and there's, I'm trying to think, there was like a guy, I can't think of his name right now. I can't think of his name right now. There was like another guy who who was, you know, definitely much more like left wing, but it was like there was only a few of them, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if your social circles were sort of focused on like more that sort of angle of it, and I think maybe you came into some of that information maybe a little bit even before I did or in a different order. Maybe I was looking at some set of things and you were looking at another set of things. I can see how... Um, that you may that that may have been your experience, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think it just depends on what your sort of your on ramp is, like how the. Remember what I was talking about earlier about how everything arranges itself around you depend on what your focus is, Completely. right? Um. So I and, and and like what your social group is. So I think it, it doesn't necessarily uh a, a man a mandala effect in 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 you know that is the reason for that. Um. But I can see how it could have been that way for you. And as for what you think the Mandela effect is, like, that is right. Like, I think that is right. Like, I think that, you know, one of the things when the, when the people, when Mandela effect first started becoming like a trending thing in conspiratorial realms, like it was intriguing to me because it was like, oh yeah, I know what that is. Like I've experienced this many times before. I thought it was just like a personal thing. So I didn't talk about it and think that we needed to have like a title for it. But I'm like, this is interesting that like, that there's uh, like these collective ones that like everyone agrees on. That was kind of fascinating. And then like at a certain point, I became sort of bored of the conversation, right? And especially like when it got to the place where like, this is the most like a lot of these sort of conspiracy subcultures. Like, this is the most important one. And if you don't believe this one, you're a shill or you're dumb or whatever it is. And that all the other ones are less important than this one. And if we solve this one then ever, all the other ones will be fall into place and this, that, and I kind of lost the taste for it. Right. And then it's been coming up a lot again in, in a lot of ways. And I think I understand now, like what the appeal was for me in the beginning, what the exhaustion point came and, and, and like how I see it now. And my question to people who focus on Mandela effects is, is it, it, do you think someone else is responsible for it? Or do you think that you are responsible for it? Is the rest of the world changing around you or are you changing? And that is what is facilitating this experience of multiple realities. And I feel like that's the con where the conversation should be about that. Okay, this is like the so this is like the perfect setup for part two. We're gonna stop part one here because we're starting a whole new structure. Um, so thanks everyone for tuning in. subscribe button for liking, for sharing, for commenting, and for leaving some kind words as a review as you are authentically inspired. As you are receiving any value from my podcast, as you dig it, as you listen regularly, consider supporting me on Patreon and or Locals, where for as little as $5 a month, you get access to all of my second half podcast interviews 
as well as oodles of bonus content. Your support really goes a long way in supporting me as a journalist and an independent content creator navigate her way through a really crunchy time in terms of free speech. And as you are wanting to learn more about my work in the world, my books, my products, my quantum languaging, coaching, and consulting, you can find me at dannycats.com as well as quantumlanguaging.com. And if you're not down with a membership patronage platform and want to send me one-time donation, you can use the Bitcoin link if it actually appears on your podcast listening platform. You could also send me a one-time donation by way of PayPal at dannycats at pm.me or by way of Venmo, where my username is Sadie Bloom. Again, your support means the world and makes a massive, massive difference when it comes to continuing to share this work with the world. Thank you for sharing your sacred attention with me. Thank you for remembering that you are omniscopic amazingness and for having a rockin' day. See you next time, superstars.